This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, this week, I am on location again in uh, beautiful Skagit Valley, Washington, uh, sitting outdoors under a, a tree in the beautiful location of Garden Path Fermentation in uh, in Washington State. And uh, across from me are Amber Watts and Ron Extract, founders of Garden Path Fermentation. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Jamie. Great to be here. Um, I've, we've known each other since I think it was the 2015, um, Minnesota or sorry, the Wisconsin, Wisconsin. craft beer festival. Um, at that point, uh, you all were with Jester King and came up to represent the brewery, uh, at that ill-fated Wisconsin festival and then came up the next year in 2016, I think for our, uh, our, our, uh, Minnesota craft beer festival, which was, um, uh, our rebound, um, and has uh, continued to be a, a you know a fun event that we throw in the uh, Minneapolis Convention Center. Um, but in that in that meantime, you have gone out on your own, started this brewery garden path here in Washington, um, set out to focus on brewing beers that are of place, brew, you know, beers that uh, are made with Washington ingredients, local ingredients, um, and, uh, you know, beers that kind of express that uh, terroir of, uh, of this location here. And you very specifically chose this location because it offered all of that uh, for you. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about some of the ways in which you make expressive beers that kind of capture the flavor of the place that you're in. Um, and we're going to talk about some of those technical means in which you guide and, you know, create these beers that taste the, you know, um, in a, a very specific way, uh, despite using some, um, I would say, uh, more open-ended approaches to brewing beer. Um, still that flavor matters and making beers that feel compelling to people is an important piece of this all. Um, and you engage in all that, uh, before we do that, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, GND chillers has set the standard on quality service, reliability, and dedication to their customers craft new this year. Redundancy meets efficiency. GND's micro channel condensers are built with all aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braced connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call GND Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Amber and Ron, give me the, the, the nutshell history of, uh, of beer, uh, together apart, uh, <laughs> and what led you, uh, here to, to launch Garden Path? We could say it is a Garden Path. It was kind of a long and winding road to get here. Um, Ron's been in this industry since before he could drink legally, basically. <laughs> um, That's true. Yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, I started, I guess I, my fascination with beer started when I was in college and I, I spent a summer abroad, uh, working in the UK, attending bar at a, a real ale pub there. And then just kind of got deeper and deeper into the industry. I, I, uh, when I went to graduate school in Chicago and worked at the, uh, the campus pub there and started to meet some other folks in the industry, I ended up, um, leaving my graduate program eventually to pursue a career in beer. I went to uh, Siebel in Chicago um, and just doing the short course there, worked uh, at a local brewery for a while and then kind of moved into the retail side of the, the industry because of lack of real opportunities on the brewing side at that point. Um, and eventually went from retail to wholesale distribution importing and then eventually back to brewing um or at least to i guess brewery management and ownership and uh and then as amber said that ultimately led us here to washington state 
um, with the goal of, of really doing something that was a little bit different, doing something where we could be closer to our ingredients, where we could uh, embrace this sense of place, the sense of seasonality, um, brew without a lot of exterior temperature control, source everything from within, ideally within a few miles of where we are, um, and which we do for the most part, where we, we source about 98, over 98% of our ingredients from here in Skagit Valley. Uh, with the one exception being some of our hops, which we have to source from a little bit further afield, but still pull for entirely from the Pacific Northwest. And um, we also work with 100% native yeast, but we do it in a way that's really meant, as you mentioned earlier, to bring out softer, more balanced flavors, not to create aggressive tartness or aggressive um, barnyardiness. Uh, we're not looking for Brett bombs. We're not looking for acid bombs. We're, we're really looking to, to present things that are, that are delicate and nuanced with maybe some undertones of, of, of tartness and funk that will add complexity but not dominate the palate. And Washington State is such a great place to make beer that way just because the climate is so conducive to Saccharomyces um, versus other organisms that could produce more tartness or funkiness. Uh, so, you know, we don't have hard freezes in winter or we maybe, ha- we maybe have one. Um, it's never really hot in summer. It's always cool at night. So we don't need temperature control to keep our yeast happy, which is pretty awesome. It's basically cellar temperature year-round here. <laughs> <laughs> so you very intentionally chose this location because of the environmental concerns, also the agricultural surroundings and the ability to source those ingredients. Um, and it's almost like the perfect conditions for making this thing that you want to make. Uh, and I do like that idea, though, that um, you know while you are expressing the terroir you're also guiding that expression so that it produces you know flavorful things that are also still pleasant to drink and not just whatever you get out of that and we're going to talk a little bit more about you know how you do that but but talk to me about why i mean from a broad philosophical you know standpoint why that's a big question um well i i think part of it is that you don't necessarily think about beer and terroir as going together. Um, Historically, you know, if you go back to the history of farmhouse brewing in Europe, all like everything was about terroir, but in the past century or so, beer has become more of an industrial product where you can make the same beer, you know, in Washington or in Kenya, like the same recipe, the same ingredients, and it's not expressing anything about the place it's made and we i mean frankly we're in one of the most beautiful places i have ever been to and we're so lucky to live here and i will 100 percent agree with you <laughs> this place is absolutely gorgeous and um we want to tell that story through a beer the the storytelling aspect it's it's definitely a big part of of it it's it's a big part of of our story i guess um that looking at beer as potent, as a form of live performance, I don't think it's a way that that people tend to typically think about beer, tend to think about it as something that can be experienced again and again. And so much of brewing, as Amber alluded to, is dominated by this idea of reproducibility, of making something that's consistent and eliminating all variables so that you can make something consistent so that when you see a certain label, a certain name, you know what to expect and it delivers on that ex- expectation. And I, as a beer drinker, appreciate that, appreciate that there are beers out there that I can, um, where I, I can have this kind of set expectation and it delivers on it. It's, it's a lot like having a meal at your favorite comfort food restaurant where you go and you know what, you know exactly what the setting's going to be. You know what, what it's going to smell like, what it's going to taste like, what it's going to look like. Even if you haven't been there in a decade, you know, you can go back and have exactly that experience that you anticipate. And it is comforting. Chucking out pills is that. perfect every single time you have yeah, it. Very, yeah, for very sure. comforting yeah. beer. One that I, I personally love to drink. But there's also something to be said for your favorite farm-to-table restaurant where every time you go in, you know the menu is going to be different. You don't know what's what you're going to be presented with, but you know that it's going to be fresh, seasonal, local, and uh, thoughtfully prepared. And that's what we're trying to offer in the beer world. It is a form of 
performance art. If most beer is kind of a digital recording, what we're offering is much more of a concert or a show. It's a one-time experience. It's something that involves things coming together in a unique way based on the circumstances in which it was made, based on varying conditions. And our job is to serve as editors and curators to make sure that what we ultimately present is ready. We're kind of the, the directors there. And it's like when you go to a concert or, or a play, you don't expect it to be the same as what you've come to see or hear before. But if you have confidence in the uh, directors and performers, then you know that it's going to be something special and unique. And that's what we're trying to present with what we do is something that, that is going to be different, often in, in subtle ways, but different nonetheless, but that will be a unique experience every time. Sure, sure. I want to dive into the kind of guardrails that you build around that, because even though you can riff on things and you can build that unique experience, there is still a commonality and a thread you know, through it that you want to build. Before we, uh, we delve into that question, the world of craft beer is a different place now. Margins are more important than ever, so why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from Old Orchard are the cost-effective solution for your fruit-forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, for years, BreweryDB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on brewerydb.com. In just a few weeks, BreweryDB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of BreweryDB and increase your taproom traffic, set up your account on MarketMyBrewery.com. That's MarketMyBrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So as much as you know, you start riffing. Like if I show up, you know, to to see someone in concert, I know they're gonna play with the kind you know I, i'm familiar with the band i know what they're going to play and they may mix things up and you know um go off on a solo or you know uh, throw another song into the mix or something along those lines that provides that fresh live experience the thing that we go and, and enjoy about um, and you know seeing that kind of thing live um, but there's still a framework around it you know how do you build common thread for garden path so that people even as they are experiencing the, these different seasons these different expressions that they are there is still something familiar for them through that so part of it is our yeast culture um our house culture has um except for our spontaneous beers we've used it in everything we've ever made um and it does change and evolve over time but it's you know a progression that you can kind of taste over you know, every edition of our beer. Um, the other thing, though, is that with all of our beers, if we make it a second time, it's never going to be exactly the same, but it's the same philosophical uh, idea behind it. So um, the first beer we ever released was called The Garden Pass Led to Flowered. And we can talk about our naming conventions <laughs> later if you want to, um, which is kind of a riff on some of our favorite hoppy um, Belgian-style golden ales. And so every edition of Flowered has been a hoppy Belgian-style golden ale um, fermented in an open fruiter with some aging, probably a little bit of blending. But the malt, the grain bill is going to be slightly different. The hops are going to be slightly different um, just to kind of capture what is there at the time that we're making it. For some of the additions, we've blended in some older beer from barrels. Um, a couple of them we we just did um, a single single component um, and it's really it's just it depends on what the beer is telling us it needs to be the best version of itself so we're we never have anything really carved in stone as far as our process goes or certainly as far as our timetable goes we have an idea of how long things might take based on past experience and based on having done um, other things that are kind of similar but it's always evaluating it. We'll never have a situation where on a brew day we have the whole calendar plotted out for this. This is going to spend X number of days in the open fooder. I mean, usually that's about a week, but that can vary a bit. But then from there, we'll get transferred into stainless. We'll get transferred into oak, get split 
between different types of vessels? Will we blend in older beer from other barrels? That really is all just kind of a judgment call based on what we smell, what we taste, and what we think it needs. And if we see it going in a direction that we think is kind of interesting and cool and unique, then we'll lean into it and we'll explore variations of the theme and differences from what we've done in the past. Or if we feel like it's it ends up being very similar to something that we've done before and we like it, that's cool too. So it's really just kind of following where the beer takes us, which in some cases may be a place that we didn't necessarily expect to go, but that's beautiful and worth exploring. And that's kind of the nature of the garden path. That is a difficult way to run a brewery where... Um you know, you, you're going to brew some wort and you have an idea for what that beer might become. Um, but you are constantly having to evaluate and react and replan potentially in order to push that beer into some direction that may lead you in a different way than you thought. Um, it's how do you, from a like practical standpoint, do that? You know, I mean, even thinking about like, am I going to make a decision about X or Y or Z today as I taste this beer? Like, I mean, that's just an unusual and a, you know, way to operate in a brewery. Well, a big part of it is surrounding ourselves with the right team. We need a team that balances that sensibility of wanting to explore and wanting to um, explore variations and different ideas, different approaches but that also is practically grounded enough to be able to to actually get things done. Um, We can be a little bit on the idealistic side in some ways, so we definitely need some more practically minded people, but our idealism can probably drive some of those folks a little bit crazy. So it is a a tough balance to strike, but for me, I don't think I would want to be doing this if all we were doing was just reproducing things over and over again. I can understand the appeal of that. I can understand the appeal of making like really tiny, fine adjustments to just constantly try to improve on things and and make it better. And then once you feel like it's perfect to just keep doing it and to define oneself on it. But it's that just doesn't speak to me. I like the the variation. I mean, I'm I'm a philosopher. I like to explore. And <laughs> sure, sure. I, I think I would get bored if all we were doing was just making the same thing over and over again. So I love that what we do is the expression of a moment, that it's something unique that we know exists once and will never be recreated in quite the same way. That kind of ephemeral nature of it is what makes it so appealing. And I mean, frankly, our yeast does what it does. It does different things in different temperatures. It does different things depending on the grain bill. Um, so we basically just kind of have to listen to the yeast and let that guide where something, uh, what it turns into. Like any artist, though, there are themes that uh, one might come back to. There are, you know, shapes and forms that you know one might uh, find more attractive and and uh, again continue to use and, and rethink in ways and so for you all you know, as you've been working through this kind of experimentation over the last few years and figuring out you know are there some common threads through some of these beers that you find yourself you know making more often or that things end up falling into you know kind of specific uh, uh, threads. Well, I'd say the common thread through everything that we do is that we really like to explore subtlety, nuance, softness. We like things that are really balanced that you can uh, that that you can just sit and enjoy without overthinking. If that's the approach that you want to take, but that if you do really want to subject them to that level of thought and analysis that we'll, we'll hold up to it, that have the layers there. We definitely are not a producer that makes things that are meant to be consumed in one ounce samples among hundreds of other one ounce samples. We make things that are meant to be enjoyed by the glass and I don't want to release a bottle that I wouldn't want to finish um, basically. So anything that we put out there, I feel like it's it's got to be something where you can drink a whole bottle of it and kind of crave a second whether you want to drink it at that point or not, um, but look forward to to exploring it further. Um, but as far as the recurring themes within individual products, we th- we use names, as Amber alluded to before, in talking about uh, our first release, the Garden Paths Led to Flowered. We we do multiple editions of 
different beers with the same name. Um, and the idea there is that it's we're not recreating what came before, but we're adding another chapter to the ongoing story of that product. We're exploring variations of themes, as you say. And in the case of um, Garden Paths Led to Flower, that theme is something that uh, is inspired by kind of bitter Belgian blonde ales, beers like XX Bitter was one that was particularly inspirational to us, but exploring our own interpretation of that kind of concept. So we, we do have a, a number of things. Um, we have a beer called the Prime Barrel Age, which is just a blend of some of our favorite barrels from our cellar. And each one is gonna have different components, different barrels that go into that blend, but that's the theme that that beer is. Um, another one called the Curious Mix Methods. We kind of play on the intersection of spontaneous and non-spontaneous fermentation techniques, either in one case we blended, we did a blend of spontaneous and non-spontaneous barrels. And another, we took some work from the cool ship and put it into a freshly emptied barrel that had previously had non-spontaneous beer into it. So there was a little bit of a, a co-fermentation going on um, for, for another version. The, the first version of that beer that we did, we took um, work from the cool ship and used it to inoculate another portion of that batch that had gone through the heat exchanger along with a a very small pitch of our house yeast so they kind of worked together but each one was a different exploration of how we could kind of um, blur the lines between spontaneous and non-spontaneous fermentation so we like to kind of choose techniques like that and we also we do one-offs we do things that may ultimately that may that may have started out as one-offs but that we may ultimately decide to explore further um we love working with local fruit i mean that's a recurring theme sure and we do two different series um of fruited beers in addition to a number of, well three now um in addition to a number yeah. of one-offs um we make a series called uh the fruitful barrel where it's meant to be pretty fruit forward but still really balanced where the fruit is definitely kind of the the lead actor so to speak but it's still meant to be a really well-balanced beer and not something that just presents as, as straight up fruit juice. We do another series called the subtle blend, which is where the fruit is more of a background player where it's meant to kind of, it's a team player, team player. It's, it's definitely there, but it's meant to enhance the blend rather than dominate. And then we um, do fruited versions. We've recently released the first two fruited spontaneous beers that we did um, with one with raspberries and one with boysenberries. Um, but we've also done some one-offs. Um, so the, the beer that you're drinking right now um, is actually our third anniversary beer called Three Orbits Around the Sun. And that has, the base beer is actually a smoked beer that we then re-fermented with Tayberries, which is a berry that no one knows what it is. Um, they're delicious. <laughs> I've never heard of them before, yeah. Yeah, they're a cross between a raspberry and a blackberry. They look like the biggest blackberry you've ever seen. Yeah. Um, but they present a little bit more like a raspberry. They're really savory. And um, that beer, I don't know if we can recreate it. We probably can, but um, it was kind of intended as a one-off just to see what would happen. It turned into something really lovely, though. It's only 4.5%, which is kind of surprising. But it's just really nice and balanced and savory, and it's just a food beer. Well, and you had me a smoked beer with fruit in it, which um, doesn't, you know, on paper sound like something that a lot of people would want to drink. And yet, as you drink it, it, you know, you, the smoke is just a small component that, you know, adds a kind of, you know, rich woodiness to it. And, uh, you know, a little bit of... Uh, um, just a touch of kind of peppery, you know, phenolic, you know, elements to it. Um, and that actually complements some of that kind of berry phenolic character that also pushes it. But the thing that I get out of it is almost this wine like, mm -hmm. you know, taste on the palate, um, that doesn't necessarily even taste like beer that much that it, you know, that, um, uh, that it just has this fullness, even for such a, a small thing that, uh, you know, that captures us. And I, you know, um, that's a nice element to it. The acid is in a very controlled place. It's it's there, but it's very small, um, and is a kind of complementary element to this, rather than driving it as some sort of quote unquote sour beer. Um, you know, and it, and it pulls together as this very drinkable, you know, beer that that's full of that rich, lush berry character. Thank you. Um, that is definitely a recurring theme with our use of fruit is that. 
a lot of fruited beers, I would say, tend to be either very sweet or very tart. And we like to pursue something where it's it's not really either of those things. We like to work with fruit where the end product is very dry, but without any kind of harsh tartness to it. So dry but soft is what we look for there. And I think the, the level of fruit in this is similar to what you'd see in our Fruitful Barrel series, but with the the lightly smoked base, it kind of gives it a little bit of a different angle, um, which is is kind of fun. And working with smoke, we also have a, a beer on the table here um, called the Gentle Hint of Smoke, which is inspired by a Lichtenheiner, um, which lightly smoky, lightly tart. I you mentioned wine-like. I actually find it a little bit cocktail-like, almost the notes of gin or mezcal because it's it's so dry. You don't have that kind of barbecue meaty sweetness that you get out of a, a lot of smoked beers it really transforms into something else and that that dryness is definitely a recurring theme i mean every we we never inhibit our fermentation anyway so we let everything ferment dry most of our finishing gravities uh typically are end up below 1.0 if we have a beer that's at 1002 then we worry a little bit like <laughs> is, is it really, right, is it done right. or is this going to keep fermenting? Um, so it's more typical that we'll end up around 996, 996, 998. I mean, 1002 is about as high as yeah. we go. And that's, as I said, that always makes us a little bit nervous. So that dryness, definitely a recurring theme. And yet as dry as it is, there's still this kind of round mouth feel and a, and a fullness to it that, uh, you know, that doesn't feel thin and, uh, you know, helps keep that, that, you know, berry flavor as well as that smoke flavor from, from feeling sharp. You know, how, wh what do you do to kind of massage it in that direction? Well, we use fresh fruit, um, which definitely I think contributes a lot more, um, using fresh locally grown fruit. Really you get that complexity that you would never get using something like a fruit extract. At least I, I don't think that you would. Um, but also I feel like mixed fermentation, Honestly. When you say that, you know, what do you what do you think is contributing to that from that that uh, whole fruit? Um, other other acids fitting into it, or are there other or you know uh, other elements that are coming from that fruit that uh, you you think that it's? I think so. I think using the whole fruit, using um, the the skin, using every part of the fruit, really, yeah. you're going to get flavors that you know. If you try to isolate all the components, may not seem like the most desirable flavors. But that's in working together, they can really add, enhance what's there. And that, that goes to a lot of our philosophy, too, that we've not only have we never purchased yeast in the history of Garden Path, we've also never isolated any individual strain. We take a very holistic view where we feel like the community of microbes that's responsible for our fermentation can't be understood in its entirety by studying its individual components, that they affect one another's behavior, they influence one another in a way that you may not get if you just isolate each individual organism and try to see what it contributes. So we, we embrace all of it and we our analysis is almost entirely sensory in terms of how is the community behaving and if it starts to get off track, then how can we help to kind of steer it back in the right direction? So. Um, I think that, that that working with that community of organisms is a big part of it. And I know we're, we're here to talk about beer, but looking at some of the other beverages that we also make, because we're a winery and cidery and meadery as well as a brewery, I mean, mead is something where you would think that a mead that starts relatively low in terms of, of gravity and then finishes super dry, conventional thinking is that's going to be really watery. But something that I found in some home mead making experiences is that if you use a mixed culture to ferment it, then you get this perception of body, you get this perception of complexity and richness that in theory you shouldn't get and that you wouldn't get if you just fermented that with a straight up champagne yeast and it just converted all the sugar into alcohol and CO2, that there are just these other compounds that are present, these byproducts of fermentation that are present that just add to that nuance and sophistication, even in the absence of residual sugar or higher alcohol content. And the other interesting thing about our yeast culture is that it expresses differently in different conditions. So colder weather fermentations, um, I mean, the past year, winter was spontaneous season, but if we have done, you know, fall or winter, uh, open, uh, 
fooder ferments, um, you get much more of a, I call it Christmas spice note on the beer than you do if it's a warmer weather fermentation. So you get like cinnamon and clove and nutmeg. Um, but in warmer weather, you it's a lot more floral. Um, and the base of our yeast culture is flowers, actually. So, I mean, that kind of makes sense. But it's just really interesting which organisms are most active and most happy in different conditions. Let's, um, you know, I know you've mentioned it a couple of times now about open food or fermentation. And then, of course, also how you've sourced your uh, the yeast culture that you ferment with. Let's um, talk about that a little bit just so that, you know, people understand exactly what you're talking about. But before we do that, the founders launched SS Brewtech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds and brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS Brewtech has the people and skill sets you'd want to expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, when it comes to brewing, nobody has your back like Clarion because their food-grade lubricants are formulated to help make your brewing system 100% food safe. That means when you switch to Clarion, you can put the costly potential of contamination and recall out of your mind. All you need to worry about is bring great beer, and since you already do that, well, it's more like focusing on business as usual. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. And so you all, right now, you're building out, you you have a brewery here, but you're now currently sourcing wort from another brewery just down the road and fermenting here. You're in the process of installing an actual brew house. I'll say we're making wort at the brewery down the road. Um, sourcing it makes it sound kind of like we're using their work you, which... you have a brewer they go there <laughs> yeah. they, they yeah. brew your work there of course no yeah. you're right it's, i it, uh, it, didn't it, phrase that correctly it is um it's just i think it's an important point of clarification Absolutely. because we're not just outsourcing our work production we're not using another brewery's work um just to and sure. fermenting it differently sure. um though doing that i mean that would be interesting i'm sure we would have very different results fermenting chuck nuts work with our yeast <laughs> but the work that we're making there is something that we're that's wholly designed and, and overseen by us with, right. with their help. Right. I mean, we do uh, definitely take advantage of their their uh, uh, labor from their brewers as well. We and, don't take uh, advantage of it. We don't take it, advantage huh? of it. I mean, we, not in a bad way. We, <laughs> you, you benefit from we the benefit experience. From we benefit, from, yeah. we benefit sure. from uh, the assistance of, of their highly skilled team as well in our production, but it is all, all uh, designed and overseen by us. So, um, so but, talk me yeah. through that process. You you design a you know a base of, of some sort of beer um, that you then want you know have some idea of how it might end up, or at least you have some idea that it could go in a direction that you want it to go to. Uh, you know, just mm. just because because otherwise you wouldn't invest in right, <laughs> doing yeah. that. And um, you know, but then and so you towed it back here, you know, to the the Garden Path facility, and then and what are the next steps? Typically, a batch that we brew at Chuckin' Up will fill two 350-gallon totes. Uh, we get about 18 barrels of, of uh, finished wort from their system, generally. And we'll bring those totes back here. We'll send the wort for non-spontaneous fermentation. We'll send the wort through their heat exchanger, bring it back here at fermentation temperature, um, and then transfer into our open fooder by gravity, just elevating the the tote with our, our forklift and and uh, emptying it into the fooder with our yeast culture. When we were brewing every week um, pre-COVID, we were basically just going batch to batch. We were pulling the yeast out, giving the the fooder a good rinse, but not really not scrubbing it out by any means, and then just putting the the yeast pitch from the last batch back in with the the fresh wort. Um, now, since we, we slowed down production, we stopped production entirely for a while during COVID and then slowed down quite a bit afterwards. Um, we're having to vary that technique a little bit more. And we actually haven't done that much brewing with our house yeast since reopening because we, we went essentially from the end of the 20, uh, 2019, 2020 spontaneous season to more or less the beginning of the 2020 2021 spontaneous Although the season. first thing we threw at our yeast um, after uh, after it had been uh, just kind of chilling for a couple of months was Black, our Black is Beautiful collaboration with Otherlands, which was maybe too much to throw at it initially. <laughs> but 
It's turned into something really cool. We're going to release it later yeah, it, this year. It did rise to the occasion. Before that, we had done uh, a batch of beer we call the Wet Hop Chip, which we use uh, for which we use fresh hops from a farm just a few miles from here that planted their first hops uh, the same week that that we opened here at Garden Path, and we've purchased everything they've grown since. It's our, our friends uh, Amy and Byron at Hops Gadget, uh, who we have really wonderful relationship with. Um, we hope that someday they'll actually, they and other growers here in the Valley will grow enough hops to meet all of our needs. Um, but anyway, um, so we, that was kind of our first revival that we used mostly, uh, yeast from the spontaneous, uh, the previous spontaneous season for that beer. So as Amber said, the, our first real test of our, our reviving our house culture was black is beautiful. Um, which is also the first stout we've ever made. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> it was it was a challenge for the yeast, but it it worked out. Um, but for so we for our spontaneous beers, we we do a little bit of a different technique where we bring back one of the totes with wort that's still hot that's that um, goes through the heat exchanger without any cooling, so it's still coming back here at about 185 degrees, and we let that sit in our cool ship overnight to become naturally inoculated with airborne microbes. And for our first two years, what we did is we would then send that wort in the morning directly into 500 or 600 liter puncheons and let it ferment on its own. Uh, and then the other half of the batch we would treat completely separately. We would ferment it in the open fooder with our house yeast and then save it as barrel stock for fruiting or blending in the future. Um, starting our third year, we we bought a, a closed, uh, closed top vertical fooder from winery in California, cleaned it out, and decided to use that as kind of a Solera vessel for our spontaneous fermentation, where with the first batch, we took the cooled portion of the wort, put it into that fooder, and then the next day inoculated it with the the wort from the cool ship without adding any other form of yeast. And then the next time that we brewed, we transferred that, uh, the spontaneous, the, I guess the beer that was in the process of, um, spontaneous fermentation from the, the closed fooder into punchins for extended aging and put the next batch of wort in using that same process but without scrubbing out the fooder. So there was um, some residual yeast from the previous spontaneous fermentations. We kind of built up a resident um, native culture each each of the two seasons that we've done that. We cleaned it out again in between because it hadn't been used in the better part of a year. But um, And you're not tying yourself to any of these historical definitions of these things. And so that process or adhering to a, a you know a, a strict iteration of, of processes is not your jam it's not and i i've definitely i've talked to uh a number of belgian brewers about the process that we use and i think we could have an extended debate about whether the this kind of solera process is spontaneous or non-spontaneous it's certainly it's not unprecedented in belgium i'll say for sure um it's but in a way it doesn't really matter i mean i i feel like it meets the the definition um we're not we've we've never used any yeast other than native yeast but we when we use the term spontaneous what we're suggesting is that there was never any direct pitch of of yeast it was never um it was relying entirely on airborne microbes that were captured through the cool ship right. and um if those the microbes from one batch kind of linger in the vessel to the next. I still feel like that kind of meets the criteria. And if anyone wants to debate that, that's, that's fine. I'm, <laughs> I'm not really that concerned about it. Making a uh, beer that tastes good that people yeah. want to drink is, is certainly and more important than making beer that fits a, a definition. We're in Washington. We're not in Belgium. We're not going to call anything Lambic. So, yeah. you know, we're, I will say there is a, uh, a real distinction, though, between our spontaneous process and our non-spontaneous process in that when we were uh, capturing and cultivating our house culture, our goal was to have it be as Saccharomyces dominant as possible. So in with the yeast capture, we used mason jars of wort, we used hopped wort, we used wort that uh, went through the heat exchanger and was at cooler temperatures um, because we felt that both of those things would favor Saccharomyces over uh, other organisms that might be present here. We also felt that the natural climate here 
uh, would be much more conducive to Saccharomyces with the cool summer temperatures that the fact that it rarely gets much over 80 degrees here, um, that things like that prefer warmer temperatures like Britannomyces, Lactobacillus, Pediococcus, uh, um, Acetobacter, that they would not thrive as much in this climate as Saccharomyces would. Um, and we really tried to play on that by using the cooled hopped wort for that yeast capture. And when you say, you know, so for this yeast capture, you, you know, place these mason jars with this cooled hopped wort, you know, in varying you know, well, places. We tried that and that didn't work quite so well. Okay. Um, but most of those experiments were in a vineyard and orchard that at the time we were considering buying. Um, but it was not an organic vineyard and orchard. Mm. So I don't think there was that much yeast to capture. Um, What we ended up doing, uh, there's, there's always a day in Washington where like early in April, where all of a sudden it feels like every flower in the world is in bloom. And so that day we went out and we picked like one of every flower that we saw and uh, made a very simple batch of hoppy wort I filled a bunch of mason jars. Our kitchen was just like all mason jars for a couple months <laughs> and just put a flower in each one huh. and let them go and see what would, I mean, you could visually tell that some of them were not turning into something particularly lovely, but after a few months, um, some things were clearly fermenting. Some things actually smelled really good. So then we tasted them and some of them tasted better than others, but we combined the ones that we liked the best and that's the base of our culture. So our site search took us longer than we anticipated as it does for everyone, right. but it was almost exactly the right amount of time to um, continue building up this culture to the point where when we were about to open, we could brew our first batch. And that's actually what we're drinking right now. Um, it's a beer we released much later called Our First Take Time. And this was a half batch at Chuck and Nut. But it's a really interesting expression of where yeast culture was when it started. Um, this beer was remarkably clean. Right. Um, and it it just has a very different kind of character than the first beer that you had, which was mm-hmm. the easygoing drink. Um, but, I mean, it, it was a long process to get from four mason jars to a 10 barrel batch and that initial experiment we kept repeating too so what we did with flowers we then did more mason jars with with leaves with berries just with anything that we thought might be an interesting yeast source lots of mason jars and it was just saving the good ones combining them getting rid of the bad ones and really trying to naturally select for uh these kind of soft subtle balanced flavors that we like to pursue when we use the cool ship we're of course, getting a very different cross-section because the wort is starting out hot and slowly passing through this much warmer temperature range. So even though there may not be as much um, Britannomyces and Lacto and PDO and Acetobacter and other organisms present here as there would be in warmer climates, that wort is still going to be very attractive to what is present and it's going to cause those organisms to, to settle in and get to work before Saccharomyces takes over and will therefore produce very different results. Um, so uh, we'll open a bottle of our spontaneous ferment here and <laughs> yeah, you, can, yeah. you can taste what's going on with it. Now but, you also, you know, with this culture that you developed, you know, you mentioned you open fermented. Um, talk to me about that benefit of your brewing, of uh, fermenting in a uh, open top uh, fooder for fermentation. Yeah, um, I like to think of it as kind of free-range yeast, that yeast is, during fermentation, it's often under a lot of pressure in most brewing environments, especially if breweries are using very tall cylindroconical fermenters, which are great for saving floor space and really maximizing efficiency. But um, they're, they're not as, and they're also, they're great for yeast collection because that yeast will really get forced down into the base of that cone um, in a way that makes it easy to separate it from the, the fermenting beer and then repitch it. But you're usually not going to want to do that more than a few times because that puts a lot of stress on the yeast when it's got all that mass sitting on top of it and sure. then back pressure from the CO2 that's venting out of the top of the tank, um, but probably not venting out quite quite as quickly as it's being formed. Um, so that's, that's just a lot of stress on the yeast. And by fermenting in an open fooder, working in an environment where 
Um, there's no back pressure because the, the CO2 can vent out freely where the yeast can coat the sides of the vessel where we don't have a lot of depth of liquid because we're only filling up the fooder typically a little over halfway and where the yeast the bottom is wider than the top so it can really spread out it means that collection is going to be more of a challenge that we're going to end up bringing a lot of the the beer from whatever batch we're brewing now into whatever we brew next but it means that the yeast is really it it's not stressed and it can keep going and we've been able to by doing by using this process we've been able to reuse our house culture over 80 times at this point um and at the time covid as i said has presented a challenge because it was this extended hiatus but up to that point the yeast just showed no signs of fatigue at all it was really in in great shape so now Now from a production standpoint though you have to have a fresh wort uh you know as soon as you finish that next one right to to keep it going we have a brink so if if there was any break we would transfer the yeast into a brink of the converted keg um and feed it small amounts of wort as needed um, we can run over to check it yeah. out and get a gallon yeah even if we're not <laughs> brewing they probably sure. are so hitting them yeah. up for for a gallon of wort to to feed the yeast is not such a big deal or or you can we can feed it apple juice or something else if, if we needed to to keep it going there's actually plenty of apple juice available here um okay. yeah <laughs> uh so that's that's not a, a problem but but yeah normally we were brewing frequently enough to just go go batch to batch and pull the yeast out and start start the next one uh we look forward to getting back to that point hopefully yeah sometime soon. yeah Sure, sure. Um, you know, after that fermentation process, what's what's the or after that open fermentation, what's the next step in your process? Um, the beer often tells us. So, <laughs> um, most things go into barrels. Do you know how many? Did you count the barrels? No, I didn't. I didn't okay. count. Um, We're not sure how many active barrels we have at this point. A couple hundred. Yeah, maybe maybe three hundred. Um, hard hard to say exactly sure, we move but, them in and out so um some things if like we the first beer that we tasted together the easygoing drink that's one that typically will actually be a little bit of quicker production it'll go from the open fooder into probably stainless secondary but sometimes we may blend in some older beer from barrels for complexity if, if we feel that it needs it um or we miss that batch that you tasted actually was um, kind of unique in that it uh, it we actually cool shipped it because we we felt like well we why not to. let's <laughs> let's do it um, and then it ended up spending a lot of time in barrels because again COVID we um, we weren't packaging right away so transferred it into barrels and just kind of left it on its own for quite a while so that was a um, a, a different take on on that beer but normally that's one that would be relatively quick production and something that's that's lower gravity that's not a challenge for the yeast that is is pretty straightforward um that might we might be able to turn that around a little bit quicker and go right into stainless usually we don't want to leave anything in the open fooder for more than about a week because we we don't want it to get overly oxidized if it's not actively off-gassing co2 anymore then the advantages of being in the open vessel really start to dwindle and the the disadvantages begin sure, to outweigh sure. the advantages so we really only want to leave it in there while it's it's in pretty active fermentation and then typically transfer it from there to closed vessels whether that's stainless or oak or whatever we decide makes the most sense for that batch sure. and then we give it a lot of time right <laughs> uh, patience right. is really our best friend here um, and once we package everything is naturally conditioned so that's even more time um, naturally conditioned with uh, local honey um, yeah, the the only variation on that is that we've done some experiments with spunding, um, where we're packaging a little bit before fermentation is complete. Uh, that was something that we couldn't really do before. Uh, we did actually our very, our very one of our very very first experiments was a spund keg, which oddly we still get reviews of popping up every now and then um i don't know where people are drinking this huh. beer because there was only one keg of it which was in our tap room in our tap room in which 2018 we, yeah which was finished in 2018 so if you you're the, listening to the this sheer and you, magic of and you, you really know. enjoyed uh the experimental spund recently then you may be a little bit confused but um but yeah it's something that we've, we've kind of played around with a little bit but our yeast was so aggressive in its fermentation for a while that it wasn't it was we, hard to we, time we, that. we would have like <laughs> yeah. 
the the time that it would have taken to transfer the the uh, actively fermenting beer would have changed the the amount to which it it had been fermented. So it, it wasn't really something that was was viable at that point, but it's something that we could play around with again well, in smaller batches. Well, and we did batches. with the lager ale. Yeah, yeah, we did, actually. Um, um, we, we actually we made a super fun beer this winter. Um, we're calling it the Skagitonian Lager Ale, which is confusing. But basically, we wanted to see... We, you know, there's probably lager yeast. In our that culture. sounds like something that the Texas legislature would force you to call a beer. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank God we don't have to deal with them anymore. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we we're pretty sure we have lager yeast in our culture. I don't know. Uh, but basically, we wanted to see if we could lager a beer in barrels outdoors this winter, and it worked. Um, you know, we brought the barrels inside at night if it was going to be too cold, but left them outside during the day. Um, they were outside during a snowstorm after most primary was mostly finished. Our one snowstorm. Our yeah. one snowstorm <laughs> that we had. Um, but it turned into something super cool. So um, it's kind of our take on a logger using the methods that we have available to us and using nature basically as our best friend. We don't actually know yet if the TTB will approve. Yeah, we don't know if that's <laughs> going to be the official either, name. But, we'll, we'll um, see. Right, but right. that one we did spooned, so we did yeah. package that a little bit early. Let's talk, talk to me about the honey, uh, you know, conditioning process, uh, especially if, as you're using local honey. Um, how do you, uh, you know, calculate uh, how that's going to affect and, uh, um, you know, and, and work through that kind of natural conditioning process? Well, it's, um, in, in some ways, it's relatively straightforward for us because we we can um, take the the density of the honey, doesn't vary too much. We usually figure it's about 81% sugar and that all of that sugar is going to ferment. Um, with our culture, we don't really have to worry too much about whether there's going to be some Un- unfermentable sugar in there it's it's all all gonna get it's gonna get up. all of that honey sugar. and with yeah. knowing that our our finishing gravities are gonna go where they are that if it's if the beer is at 998 before we add the honey that's pretty much where we know it's gonna end up um that makes it relatively easy in that sense but of course we're working with unrefined sugar we're working with a natural product that has some variation to it we're working with native yeast so there are definitely some unanticipated variations and with kegs we if the keg is over or under we can adjust that a little bit after the fact by venting off some of the co2 and letting it reducing the carbonation in that way if it, if it goes over um, or if we need to push it with a little bit more co2 to, to push up the, the carbonation a little bit we can we can do that as well um, with bottles obviously it's trickier that but bottles are a little bit more forgiving so if we have a range sometimes we may be a little bit at the low end of the range sometimes we may be a little bit at the high end but that's kind of the nature of bottle conditioning regardless even if you're using refined sugar it's still it's still there's a lot of touch and go with it and a, a learning curve sure the fact that you all are also a meadery i think uh yeah you know means you have some experience using uh, in terms of well and the reason that we use honey for conditioning is that it is a local product Um, there isn't a dextrous farm in the valley so (laughs) dextrose um... farm yeah yeah, yeah. no no one no one's growing dextrose here it's true um but we did have one batch so far the only thing that we have that unless you remember anything else? The only, there's only one thing that we have not been able to release based on carbonation levels, and that was our first batch uh, or second batch, technically, of strawberry mead. Um, it seemed to hit a really nice carbonation level, and we were getting ready to print labels and release it, and we took some to a dinner that we did. And, and I'm standing at the front <laughs> of the room talking about mead, talking about how we made this product. And then everyone behind, like everyone at the tables just gasped. And I turned around and it had basically hit the ceiling. <laughs> <laughs> Server standing there with a, a geysering <laughs> bottle. And yeah, that one, we, we couldn't actually explain it because it did hit terminal gravity. It seemed like. It, it, we think it was undergoing malolactic okay. in the bottle. Um, that's. That was our best guess as to what happened, but that's the one thing we have not, unfortunately, because it was a beautiful, beautiful product, um, been able to release. 
Yeah, everything else has pretty much gotten there. Just do a Tolkien style and empty the bottles back out into barrels and age it again. And and it becomes strawberry mead squared. (laughs) Well, we actually did some an experiment with something similar to that with that with part of that batch so um and it it turned out all right we were pretty happy with yeah with uh how that worked but yeah i mean most everything else there are a couple things where we wouldn't have wouldn't mind it if it had picked up a little bit more co2 or a little bit less but we haven't had anything else where it's been really hugely problematic how do you, um, you know, integrate the honey itself with the liquid of the beer? You know, I mean, you're talking about different viscosities of, uh, you know, dextrose is easy enough as a, you know, to integrate into a, a liquid like that. But integrating honey, you know, because it's so viscous, it, you know, is a different kind of challenge. We usually blend the honey with water first okay. to, to reduce the density. And typically it'll be about a one-to-one ratio of honey to water just to get it to liquid form that's yeah. a little bit you easier. do it under heat then or uh not not super warm but just uh, warm enough, enough to, to yeah. dissolve to, enough to, to dissolve. help it all flow and yeah. yeah um for our meads we actually usually use room temperature water we we don't use a heat method because we really want to preserve the aromatics of the sure. honey but for conditioning we'll use warm water to to get it dissolved and then um once it's mixed and liquid then we'll do some recirculation with uh, the beer. And we dose uh, differently for kegs and bottles. So we'll dose for kegs and then do a second dose for bottles. Yeah, that is something that we started doing more recently because we did find that the same dosing for kegs and bottles would typically result in overcarbonated kegs that were difficult to serve. Mm. So that's been that's actually been the bigger challenge, that our bottles, for the most part, have hit the range that we've aimed for. Um but with kegs, it's been a little trickier um, to, to kind of find that sweet spot. Tell me about uh, one of the most exciting uh, ex- you know, fermentation experiments that you've engaged in over you know, the past six months. What is, uh, um, you know, you, you watch these things develop and, and move in different directions. But uh, is there one in particular that has just been thrilling for you to watch and uh, unexpected or um, helped you learn something that uh, you weren't familiar with before? Well, I wouldn't call this a great learning experience, but the coolest thing that we've done in the past six months is we packaged our first one, two, and three-year-old spontaneous blend, um, which, first of all, is a nice testimony to the fact that we've been around for three years and sure, had um, sure. three spontaneous seasons, but it's uh, that's just turned into something really beautiful, um, and we'll probably release that later this fall. But we bottled it a month or two ago, and it's just turning out so wonderful. So that's not a great learning experience, but it's a cool thing that we did. Sure, sure. Now, talk to me about, um, you know, the blending process on that. I mean, I imagine you aren't pulling from thousands of barrels. Clearly, you're, right. you don't have a humongous amount of spontaneous stock. How, uh, how did you go about building the idea of this beer with, uh, you know, multiple years? Well, frankly, we only had what two barrels of our our first spontaneous batch from we actually made it in may of 2018 we pushed the season a little bit may 1st may 1st (laughs) yeah um and what this was kind of a weird uh production shutdown gift but um before production shut down for covid we tasted both of those barrels and they were just weird um they weren't they weren't in a bad place but they weren't great and we had a little discussion about what to do with them and it was like you know what this is these are our oldest barrels let's just let them be and you know taste them later when we think about it so six or seven months later uh, we decided to taste them and they turned into something just gorgeous and lovely and it was just forgetting about them this is kind of a lesson that we've learned sometimes if you forget about something for an extended period of time (laughs) and just go back and revisit it um, it will surprise you in a really wonderful way. So, I mean, we had two barrels that we knew were going to be our base. And one lesson we have definitely learned about blending is you blend from the hardest barrel. You start with whatever is kind of the trickiest and strangest and then blend it to the place where you actually want it to be. Yeah, I think captured that pretty well. So, <laughs> yeah, starting with those we were pleasantly surprised at how they turned out. That does seem tend to be, I guess, our 
solution to a lot of problems and dilemmas is just give it time, just see what happens. Yeah. yeah, and as long as there's space to do that, at a certain point, you kind of have to pull the plug on some things if they some things seems we, like they're yeah. not getting any better. And frankly, those barrels may have been close to that point um, before they they rounded the corner yeah. there. So I'm glad that we we didn't. But um, but yeah, starting with that, then a lot of it, um, and I, I've got to credit our production team with this, our production and seller team with this much more so than myself at this point is just being familiar with what's in the cellar and having a sense of like, what's going to go with this. And it's kind of like, it's a chef knowing your, your pantry, you know, knowing like what, what's going to work with this to kind of give it what it needs. And that's, that's the, the blending side of it. So thinking about like what, what would complement this in a, out of the range of two-year-old barrels that we have available and then once you have the blend of the two, the two-year-old and the three-year-old, then what do we which need from the one-year-old barrels will will round it out the best. And this was we we call our three-year blend. Technically, it was actually kind of a four-year blend because we used um, cool ship wort to prime it uh, rather than honey. So this was also an exception to our priming <laughs> with honey. So we used yeah. um, wort from the current season as a priming agent in this. So it, it has the three years of um, barrel-aged spontaneous beer uh, along with uh, some fresh work from the cool ship. That's pretty fun. Um, zooming out for a bit, um, in, the, in the big picture, what does success look like for you all with Garden Path? Um, how do you define it and how will you know when you've achieved it? Does anyone ever know? Yeah. <laughs> I think for me, a lot of what I hope to achieve is to build something that will last beyond us. Um, we, to, to, I guess, veer into some my personal side of things. We, we don't have kids. Um, we're, we're not going to have kids at this point. Um, it's not something that we ever really wanted. And I think a lot of people achieve their sense of immortality by future generations. For us, it's by what we create and by influencing people that are both part of our team and that enjoy our creations, hopefully are inspired by them and hoping to, to leave something behind in that way. So I hope that we can build something that will, will last for, for many generations and that will help to inspire other people to engage in their own creative endeavors. That's, that's really for me, that would be a large part of it. And, you know, to, to be sustainable on a business level, to make sure that we're generating enough money to continue operating sure, and to, sure. to make sure that, that the business can sustain itself. But beyond that, we we don't have a lot in the way of financial ambitions, I guess. We just, we want to create a sustainable business that can can give back and that can contribute positively to the community for, for generations to come. So I'd say that's that's the biggest thing. And I, I'd like people who appreciate the sort of thing that we do to have an opportunity to try it and hopefully enjoy it. So really being able to get our products out there to, to a wider audience, we know that we're appealing to minority. Not everyone is after what we do, but I think there is a subset of people out there who really do appreciate subtlety and nuance and soft, balanced flavors in the way that we do and who hopefully will appreciate what we're creating here. And I guess success for me is being able to get our, our products to them and to really have them enjoyed in the way that we enjoy them. Yeah. Well, that's well said. Thank you all for joining me on the podcast today. It's been really fun to talk to you about this uh, um, kind of wild or semi-wild and uh you know variation uh you know approach and uh and taking a lot of different pathways you know to uh you know achieve uh, multiple and different kinds of ends um that all still hang together together um GD Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling set your compass by Rara North Star Pills benefit from the scale of Old Orchard Set up your account on marketmybrewery.com today SS Brewtech is advancing brewing equipment design performance and quality and gain peace of mind with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbrewing.com. If you're a pro brewer, consider the All Access Pro subscriptions. And uh, 
Amber and Ron, if people want to learn more about Garden Path Fermentation, where do they find you in real life uh, and out there in the, in the digital realms? Our handle for everything, including our website, is gardenpathwa.com. And in real life, you can find us in Skagit Valley, about halfway between Seattle and Vancouver, BC, uh, just a couple miles off of I-5. So if you're ever traveling in that direction, especially once the border reopens, then uh, we're, we're a good stopping point along the way. And um, Skagit Valley is also known for its annual Tulip Festival, which takes place every April. Um, so uh, we get a lot of people coming up to visit that if you're into tulips. Come and see the tulips. People and are then, into tulips. Uh, stop in for for a beer, cider, or wine, mead, whatever uh, you happen to want to drink. For sure. And your beer is distributed out, uh, you know, in various states and, and can be found through some distributors. It is. Yeah, we were actually part. Uh, we were distributed throughout the U.S. largely through Shelton Brothers Network, right. which unfortunately is no longer in existence in quite the way that it was, but uh, a lot of places where you can find um, some of the other beers that Shelton Brothers once imported, uh, you should be able to find our, our products as well. And if uh, you can't find us where where you are, ask your local retailer, shoot us an email, do do whatever, uh, and we'll, we'll try to get some stuff there. We also do ship statewide in Washington, and if you happen to be in the Seattle area, we uh, do bi-weekly deliveries down that way as well well fantastic uh it's been wonderful to talk to you all in this bucolic location in the skagit valley and uh, a wonderful and beautiful afternoon um with all of the sounds of nature around us thanks and uh, and thanks for sharing beers with me cheers 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 This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.